Welcome to the Christmas episode of the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson Palme, and I am an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today is the 17th of December, and many of us are just about to go on Christmas break. But before we do that, we want to share this special holiday episode of the pod with you. On today's pod, we will talk about Havila's master thesis and discuss some holiday-related science, including the effect of Christmas food on your microbiome, how bacteria are contributing to your Christmas tree, and what is going on in the microbiome of Santa's reindeer. And here with me to discuss all these issues today are Havila Kunchi, who just finished her master thesis on antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas agrinosa. How are you doing, Havila? Uh, hello, Johan. Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? Fine, thank you. It's um, not the nicest of weather today, but otherwise I have nothing to complain about. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> we are also joined by Sebastian Wetterstein, who is a master student in the lab, who works on improving the taxonomic classifications of Metaxa 2. Hi, Sebastian. Hey. All good in your end? Yeah. I was going to whine about the, the rain, but you already did it, so... Oh, well, I, we're Swedes. We can whine about the weather forever. Here with us today is also Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the Embark project, working on monitoring of antibiotic resistance in the environment. How are you doing, Anna? Hi, Johan. I'm fine, thank you. I'm also dreaming about white Christmas, but it's grey and rainy outside. I was super jealous seeing the pictures from my colleagues in Wisconsin who have, like, what's five inches of snow, like one and a half decimeters, something like that. Uh, wow. So apparently Sweden is just not the place to be this Christmas. Uh, on the pod today is also Emil Burma, uh, who is a doctoral student in the lab working on disturbances and invasion in microbial communities. How are you doing, Emil? I'm doing very, very well. Uh, I'm on the note that uh, you are describing about uh, the weather and stuff. Uh, my brother has uh, so generously re reminded me about the phenomena of uh, midday night that they have uh, in the northern parts of Sweden, where they don't even see the sun during the winter <laughs> during the winter months. So yes, of course, I can complain, but I mean, he's always going to one-up me in that case. So on the pod today is also Mabuba Lubna Actor, who is a master student in the lab working on the genes that contribute to invasion ability in Pseudomonas agrinosa. How are you doing, Mabuba? Hello, I'm doing great. Actually, I'm expecting more snow this year, but it seems just raining and raining. Ah, I know. Uh, unfortunately, I have to tell you that this is quite often the case in Gothenburg. I think the last uh -huh. good winter I was through was in 2011, 2012, something like that. Okay. <laughs> and finally, we are also joined by Marcus Venne, who is a master student and recent father who is uh, working with antibiotic resistance development in soil. How are you doing, Marcus? Hello, I am doing well. I'm getting more sleep than I thought I would, so <laughs> I can't complain. As Emil said, there are people who have worse. Uh, is your daughter doing, doing well as well? Is she, yes, yes, she's doing very fine. Very we're very good. lucky, we're very happy. <laughs> very stereotypical, but it's, <laughs> I guess it is what it is. So very nice celebrating the Christmas holidays with all of you. Um, so on today's pod, we will first of all have a bunch of exciting news to share. The lab recently got a four-year grant from the Swedish Research Council for taking our work on interactions in microbial communities uh, into the human microbiome and look at how disturbances to the, these interactions affect human health. Specifically, we will look at the effects of antibiotics on, on disturbing these interactions 
And this project will start next year. So I'm very thrilled to start digging into this question, which I think holds great promise for understanding diseases that today have very diffuse causes uh, like IBS. And another thing I'm also looking forward to in this context is collaborating with Sara Lindén here at the University of Gothenburg and my old friends in uh, in Madison at the University of Wisconsin, Joe Handelsman and Ophelia Venturelli. So this is going to be great fun in the coming year. Uh, I also want to toot my own horn a little bit and say that I am very thankful for the big prize I got from the Gothenburg Medical Association and the Solgrenska Academy uh, to young and promising, sci- promising scientists. Uh, I was at the board ceremony earlier in December to receive this prize and to be honest, that was a tad weird. Uh, I mean, to be awarded a prize over Zoom, it sort of points out. It sort of points to how hard it is to make these work work from home environment elegant and look luxurious. Um, so, it was a very nice occasion, but also a very weird setting. And I appreciate that they tried, but it's. It's, it is very hard to make a prize ceremony seem like a prize ceremony on Zoom. <laughs> on the same note, I am also very happy to be in the Clairvariate Analytics list of the top 1% cited researchers. And although I don't believe that this list in itself means very much, I think it's very great to see that there are so many people who think that our research is useful and worth citing. So that's, I think, a pat on the back on everyone's um, work here. So another thing we did in the last month was that we, uh, or three of us, have attended a our first virtual conference. Um, so I would like to just quickly talk a little bit about your experience with that. So we were at the Microbiome and Probiotics Forum, which was hosted on the last of November and the first of December. And quickly, Emil, what what are your thoughts on this interesting virtual conference format? I was uh, somewhat disappointed, actually, in uh, in the entire format of how this conference was established. So uh, this might not be true for all of the different virtual conferences, but how it was in this conference was that they had recorded videos uh, of the different um, attendees, conference presenters, and they... Uh, whenever the, the presenter was going to do their presentation, they just played the video. And afterwards, if there were any questions, uh, they pulled the presenter into a Zoom chat and they could answer questions from a chat. Uh, according to me, at least, this did not really inspire a direct uh, conversation between the different attendees and the presenter themselves because you couldn't get any sort of direct visual feedback uh, from from the presenter since it was pre-recorded they couldn't really you know get any idea of like are the audience uh, understanding what I'm talking about or are they completely lost are they is there any part that are com- like sort of unsure and of course what the what then often happen in the case was that there were no questions whatsoever. Um, yeah, and I think this was what uh, I mean, it was one of the striking things to me, the total, the total lack of interaction yeah. between the listeners and the presenters in many cases. And it, it felt like one weird thing was that you got the questions through the chat. Yes. So you never got to talk to someone either. Yes. Um, so I, I agree with you on all the points there. And also, 
having been in the position of the presenter at the same conference, I mean, having video recorded your talk a week before the conference, it was nice because it sort of relieved the stress of having to think about doing your talk in the afternoon. But at the same time, it was so hard to know if there's some part of this that will be totally uh, outlandish to people, they won't understand what I'm saying, because I have no chance of correcting that real time. And I mean, look people in the eyes and see that, okay, people are not understanding what I'm talking about here. I have to be more clear. There's, was, there was no chance to do that. And that's, I mean, it, it was actually in this format, it was actually worse than it is in my teaching, where you can at least try to spot this there. Uh, is there students who look like they are falling asleep or there's st- students that look like they don't understand anything or does it look like they are interested? Yeah. Uh, in this case, you had no indication whatsoever since you had pre-recorded your video. Yeah, well, uh, I totally agree um, with what you already said in terms of both networking and communication. That is, of course, online format makes it rather difficult. But at the same time, I felt that it was maybe one of the conferences where I was not afraid to ask questions because I feel always very, a little bit like intimidated uh, in the big conferences to like raise your hand, stand up and ask the question because it always feels like there's stupid questions. But here it was much more easier. You just type it in the chart. And um, yeah, I felt that I was very happy actually that I asked a couple of questions and got answers. So uh, there are positive sides also, (laughs) I think. Yeah, and I think that's actually a good point. There's a lot of things where I think we could learn from the pandemic uh, and bring the best part with us into the future. So in in the case of what you're bringing up here, wouldn't it be nice to have like a feature? Everyone has their phones now or like half of the attendees are sitting with the computers on anyway. So, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to just have a function where you could submit a question during the talk and then the... Um, the moderator would get that on the fly during the presentation and be like, oh, that's an interesting question. I'm going to pick that one up. Uh, and if there are no questions, which, I, by the way, the moderators were horrible at this at this particular conference. Um, if there are no questions, of course, they should prepare questions so that there are still questions. That's one of the roles of the moderator of that such a session, right? right. So, I mean, that, that became just slightly weird that they're always... Or not always, but in a majority of cases, it was like, oh, so if there are no questions, then we move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's that's on the that's sort of on the um, on the um, moderators, yeah. not so much on the conference format as such. I just wanted to mention one more positive side, since it's not my first virtual conference. Two weeks before that one, I was in another antimicrobial conference, and what I noticed there is that the range of presenters, uh, they were coming from very, very different countries, as well as, let's say, underdeveloped countries. Maybe in a normal circumstances, it would cost a lot of money to travel, to pay conference fees, hotels. But this time, you really felt that people were so much uh, happy to be there and so engaged. So we had, for instance, a whole Slack channel organized for communication, and it was a success because it was constant flow of messages, questions. And what I noticed also is that it was much more communication. Let's say if people were interested in the talk, they started a little thread, 
And then they were keep on going, discussing it. It was really nice to see because it was not just five minutes of question and answer. It was really follow up. So this is discussions. This is a very good point. I think this is a little bit akin to what happened during the annual Embark meeting we organized in November, or also virtually, where you also had we had a chat platform separately from the meeting. And when there was an interesting topic, a few people started like chiming in after the talk there as well. It didn't happen to the same extent because we, I think we were only like 15 people. But uh, I mean, that, that's a good point as well, that it enables another another set of interactions. So I think, again, this goes back to this particular conference that it was kind of clunky to do messaging as well. Uh, so maybe this, I think it's, the format was called hop-in. And I think maybe the hop-in format isn't really ideal. Um, for the type of interactions I'm after at the conference, at least. There was actually a opinion paper published on more or less what you said here, that we can actually use the pandemic as a chance to widen diversity at conferences. So instead of just inviting the same old speakers from Western European countries, essentially, you could start inviting people that normally would have uh, issues traveling for some for some reason and make the conference more diverse and I, I mean I was teaching at a PhD course in Brazil last month and that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened uh, if it wasn't for the pandemic so I think there's a lot of things we can learn here and improve our daily routine in the future f- from this year both me and Anna had a poster at this conference uh, and how the uh, conference schedule was organized was that, uh, the uh, schedule uh, poster session time uh, somehow overlapped with lunch and with break meetings. Uh, so, of course, that when that happens uh, in uh, physical conferences, when you're actually there, then there's you know food being served and there's a monitor area where people can walk around in and they are somehow, uh, maybe not forced, but coerced to interact with the montees. But what happened in this case is that that was break time. So people left their computers and no one went to the posters. I didn't have a single individual come into my uh, poster group and ask anything, uh, except for one of the individuals who were running a this like workshops thing. <laughs> she come, came in and dropped a questionnaire for me uh, and then left. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I was actually thinking about this when I saw the format for the conference and like, this is going to suck for the posters. Yeah. Uh, there has absolutely not been any thought paid to how to get people to pay attention to the posters in this format. So I think that was a another mistake on the behalf of the of the organizers, actually. Yeah, and perhaps because I don't think it has to be like that. Yeah. Perhaps you had a better experience than I had, Anna. But my, I, I didn't have a single interaction with any individual at that conference. Yeah. Well. I was a little bit happy that uh, I had a few questions that got into chat and were answered, but also we managed to find one potential, um, I don't know, contact or collaborator who actually commented on the poster. But I also noticed that uh, I think we were a little bit outside of the scope for this conference because it's so much we're focused on probiotics and everything related to it that no one were in, really interested in antibiotic resistance and so on. So that could be also, I think. Yeah, of course, that could be a contributing factor. But uh, 
I mean, it would be nice to have at least, you know, someone at least come into the group <laughs> and make that. I did. Uh, I did. I read. Yeah, yeah, you you <laughs> did. But uh, you, no offense, Anna, you were not my target audience with that poster. Given now we've been discussing the format of online conferences and it's a mixed bag. But I mean, what is the scientific take on message? What did you think about the content? I thought it was really nice. Uh, there were a few... Uh, presentations that really like like oh shit people are actually doing this uh, and uh, I mean the on ship microbiome analysis that you talked with was kind of cool uh, I remember that presentation uh, but the one that really stuck out in my head was that you could have different epidermal microbiomes that induced uh, radiation uh, resistance uh, which I thought was really cool. So depending on like, if you like for me, if you are really pale, you could have, uh, if you change this, the epidermal microbiome, you could become more resistant against the sun. That would be cool. And yeah. Yeah. Anna, what are your big take home messages from the conference in terms of the scientific content? No, I really liked it. I think it was really a diverse scope in terms of um, microbiome and different uh, ways like related to skin, related to Alzheimer's and um, everything possible. So I think I found, uh, yeah, it was very interesting and there were quite uh, a few talks that I thought were really, really nice. Yeah, I, I kind of liked it too. I think it, it, it's maybe this is because it's not the typical antibiotic resistance conference that I generally go to. So I was like, oh, there's a lot of new interesting material here and people I haven't <laughs> haven't heard from before. So I, I was I was positively um, positively impressed by the uh, by the scientific content of the conference as well. My main issue was not the content of the conference. That was great. Uh, the issue was that I didn't really like the conference platform. Yeah, I agree. Because I, I, I'm, I'm in Emil's camp here. I, I really miss the interaction part of a normal conference. Let's move straight into our first topic of the day, which is Havila Kunsch's master thesis. And so first of all, Havila, congratulations. You presented your thesis in November. And with some time to let this sink in, how are you feeling now? Uh, such a nice question. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm able to finish. Uh, it's been over a month for now. Right after I have finished my thesis, it didn't feel like I finished it all. I still had thought, thoughts of like, if I should like correct something, if I should put some figure here or all these thoughts are still running. But now that it has been over a month, yeah, I'm glad I'm able to finish it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a tough year doing a master thesis. So <laughs> It is. My master thesis has been kind of a strange, weird experience, as you say earlier. It I was kind of like worried in the beginning because the moment I have started my thesis is when the COVID scenario becomes serious. So given all those things, I was quite worried if I if there would be any delay or if I could even finish in time. But since everything went fine in the end, I'm happy. Yeah, I think I remember back to when, when you started and... I don't remember exactly what week into your thesis it was when the when the work from home order came and at that point we were really uncertain to what extent that applied and how it applied to master students yeah. compared to personnel and mm -hmm. so everything was kind of a mess 
uh, in the first couple of months of your thesis. So I think in that in that light, I think that you recovered very well from from the shock in the start. Yeah, my thesis is a COVID survivor. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a quite, kind of different sense, but yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's start in this end. Um, what is your thesis about? Uh, could you lay it down? Can you lay it out in like very overarching terms? Yeah, sure. So my thesis is about finding the genes and factors responsible for the antibiotic resistance in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. In this project, uh, uh, I usually try to find these genes using a high throughput mutant screening. I did find some uh, potential resistance genes. Uh, and also their uh, metabolically connected genes, as well as I try to make a, a hypothesis where if these genes could have a pathway slash gene-specific effect. And I can say I got some pretty good results. <laughs> so when you're saying pathway or gene-specific effect, I mean, mm-hmm. what would it mean to be that a gene has a gene-specific effect? Yeah, sure. So if a gene shows a gene-specific effect, means that like a single gene works alone to perform a particular function. But if it has a pathway-specific effect, it means that like a group or a cluster of genes work together to perform that function. And then that would mean that you would expect those genes to sort of behave similarly if you delete them, I guess. Yes. Uh, and as you say, you, you find a bunch of potential antibiotic resistance genes in the Pseudomonas agrinosa genome. Mm-hmm. If you think about it this way, are they like a great threat? Should we be concerned from a human health point of view that these genes will be our next big health concern? Mm-hmm. Uh, not really, but they could be a concern like with time. Uh, the genes that I found are like novel resistance genes and all these could like aid to the previously found resistance genes. So uh, so given what you've been doing now, I mean, you've been essentially doing this kind of or you've dealt with the large scale data mm-hmm. from deletion mutants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've been looking at which of these deletion mutants you could confirm effects mm-hmm. for, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you think that you would take this next in terms of investigating these potential resistant genes. Yeah, so the genes that I have found are, can be uh, potential future antibiotic targets. Uh, right now, I have used uh, deletion mutants in an antibiotic exposure assay, but if I overexpress them, I would see like what kind of other effects it would uh, show. So that would be a future experiment. I mean, I mean, this project could aim to. That sounds like uh, it could be the uh, a way forward here that we could be interested mm-hmm. in looking at. Mm-hmm. So you've been you've been with us for almost a year now. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great time. But what are your what are your future plans now? At the moment, uh, I'm applying for some doctor or student positions. Even though there isn't any good response yet, uh, but I'm applying for that and some research assistant positions also. So that's where I'm headed right now. So thinking about this in a COVID-19 context, mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel like there's a a lack of positions to apply for? That is so true. I'm having a quite an effect uh, with COVID. So like, for example, if, uh, if I wanted to have some research assistant position, all that I hear is like, we don't have any positions right now. We don't have any grant. And for the doctoral student positions, the thing is, like, I didn't get my degree yet, and I still need some time. Like, for example, if I had uh, over six months or so, then I would be pretty sure that I could get something. 
but given the scenario it is hard to find something the common excuse that i could hear is like covid covid so i guess i guess anyone who hears that and so who hears the pod and knows of a suitable uh, <laughs> a suitable doctoral student position in like molecular biology or antibiotic resistance should uh, should contact us <laughs> yeah great so thank you so much, Ravila, for taking your time and talking about your thesis. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you've been doing great work and it's been so nice to have you around for this year, even though it's been a very strange year for all of us. Yes, thank um, you for having me. The best of luck with your future work. I think this is most likely the last pod you're doing with the, <laughs> with the crew for a while. So yes. um, thank you very much also for your, um, for your insights and discussions on the pod. Thank you, Johan. So with that, we move into the Christmas-themed paper discussions we're having today. And um, first off, we know that uh, this year a lot of people will not celebrate Christmas with their extended family as they might be used to. But if one does, what effect would that have on our gut microbiome? That question was explored in a paper published last year in Human Microbiome Journal. And Sebastian... Uh, is there any effect of having dinner with your in-laws at Christmas? Yes, thank you. Um, that is what they look at in, in this article that me and Nana will present. Um, uh, if you go into the article in more uh, detail, you will you will start with a lot of very um, Christmas-themed poo-related facts. So if you want to delve into that, you can check out the article, I guess. I will kind of skip it here. Um, so while they're interested in like uh, Christmas and feces in a combination is that they're interested in looking at the gut uh, microbiota, uh, which is very, it's incredibly complex. And uh, I think we have seen studies in this podcast before that uh, shows that altered diet and alcohol and uh, psychological stress uh, all disturb the core composition of the gut microbiota. And this is associated with um, uh, pathological conditions such as uh, obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, uh, and IBS, and more. So uh, not only is the uh, microbiota also uh, b- becoming more and more known for like the link between it and uh, the host's mental and physical state and well-being, but also the composition affects how stresses are perceived by the host. So therefore, it's interesting to study and identify these factors uh, that affect the human gut uh, microbiota. So for this article, um, spending uh, Christmas with the in-laws or family was chosen because it covers uh, three criteria, uh, overconsumption of food, overconsumption of alcohol, and psychological stress if you have to deal with in-laws. Participants were chosen between the ages of 20 and 40 years old, uh, all were of Caucasian descent. Uh, There were no smokers, no substance abusers, and no vegetarians or vegans um, because they want a homogenous group as possible. So the the volunteers provided uh, fecal samples 
the 23rd and the 27th uh, of December. And they kept a log of uh, dietary intake between the 20 21st and the 26th of December. And they also noted if they spent Christmas with their family uh, and or their in-laws. And then using PCR, they amplified the 16S rRNA uh, sequences, uh, specifically the variable regions V3 and V4 from all the samples. Um, and then they studied the diversity in gut macrobiota and the composition between the two groups. And this was done you know, statistically using uh, permutational multivariate analysis of the variance or permanent. Uh, what they calculated in the study was the degree of difference before and after in the two groups uh, of the composition at species level. That's why they looked at the taxonomy for the groups. Yeah, and for the result, I'll hand over to Anna. Yeah, thank you. So, out of 28 recruited participants, four of them, for various reasons, couldn't be included into the analysis of this study. So, out of the remaining ones, it's 16 who visited their in-laws and eight that celebrated Christmas with their family. And Mm, out of uh, information obtained from the questionnaires uh, revealed that there was no really significant difference between, um, between both consumption of dietary macronutrients as well as alcohol between these two groups. Um, and both groups reported increase in uh, uptake of saturated fats and proteins, probably due to greater consumption of animal-based products during Christmas. So uh, the analysis, um, the multivariate statistical model that they used in the study revealed that uh, there is a particular pattern that they called biomarker signatures containing about seven different species, which are able to distinguish between those two groups. So among this um, species, uh, Ruminococcaceae family was the most dominant one. And in particular, one of the species, uh, UCG009, showed the most divergence between those two groups. And it is increased in the family group and decreased in the in-laws group. Whereas two other species of this um, Ruminococcaceae, they decreased in both groups. And it is a very interesting observation because um, previous studies showed that both uh, humans with major depressive disorders, as well as mice models, which were exposed to chronic stress, they also show lower levels of Ruminococcaceae genes. So this finding, they could imply that visiting in-laws during Christmas time could induce higher levels of stress, which in turn can reduce the number of um, the levels of ruminococcaceae genes in the gut. On the other hand, this study did not really measure the stress levels of the participants. So the fact that both whole group analysis and subgroup analysis they point towards the decrease in the ruminococcaceae genes could suggest that. Uh, both these groups experience certain degree of stress during the Christmas time. Another interesting finding was that participants who visited their own family showed higher variation in their microbial signature. From previous studies, 
it's known that both social and physical interactions between individuals uh, promote species diversity and abundance, resulting in so-called pan-microbiomes. So the authors, they hypothesized that um, participants who visited their own families had more physical interactions with their relatives in comparison to, in comparison to in-laws. Uh, so this might explain the observed higher variation in the microbial species in the family group. So also suggest that overall this finding could have clinical relevance since it's known that high diversity is also one of the most important predictors of host health. Authors also discuss what kind of limitations uh, this study has. And one of them is that it is rather observational in nature since um, it is based on a group of volunteers which decided themselves uh, how they're going to celebrate their Christmas. And authors point out that for some of them, they could use it as an excuse not to celebrate with their in-laws, but instead of celebrate with their family. Also, since the questionnaires that were used did not really include any measure for stress, um, it is not really certain that the observed difference in uh, biomarker signatures is the result of stress and not the result of some other factors. For instance, um, even though uh, authors tried to account for age and BMI, there could be other things like um, physical activity or interaction with pets that could affect microbial signatures. Another important point is that uh, the analysis of food intake was based on questionnaires and participants themselves were supposed to fill them in, uh, which is a little bit confronting as well as inconvenient during the holiday time. So all these factors could contribute to the in potential inaccuracy within the data. So in conclusion... This study identified differences in microbial signature between the two groups, however, rather modest. And the authors point out that, of course, to draw more accurate conclusions, a more a larger group, a larger randomized control study has to be performed. How are you going? <laughs> how are you going to celebrate your Christmas <laughs> this year? <laughs> I think we will have my my wife's mother over. So I guess that's family then. I guess. So have you prepared your fecal samples you oh, want? We should, we should repeat this study. We should have thought about this earlier. Uh, I guess there's like poo sample kits in the basement. If someone can just go around and distribute them at work. No. <laughs> um, oh, that, that would not be weird no, no, no. at all. Uh, so actually, I, I have a question on, on, the, on the manuscript. From skimming it, I couldn't really find information of if these um, groups of participants were independent from each other or could there be like there are several people related to the same family uh, i was also thinking to ask the same question yes because there yeah. isn't like any information on that like if you take a couple a husband and a wife let's say they visit it, it, their family yeah. for a husband and it i'm could feeling be an in-law and for wife it could be yeah, and i'm feeling that this is sort of like going around in the lab and ask <laughs> would you be willing to do this or like in a student class or something i don't know exactly what's what's happened here but it, it felt a little bit like with the fairly small sample size and uh, like this could have been like just walking around at university and being like, hey, would you like to be part of this study? <laughs> and then I wonder if there's like, or like they pick up a few people who go to the same 
<laughs> to the same gathering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also that's a factor that they haven't really like taken into account as well. Like that they could be even even before that, you, you would need to have more diverse microbiomes to see how that affects, right? Because if you only have whatever small sample size that already have, are uh, in a way mixing microbiomes, then you won't see this, this potential disturbance effect if, the, if it's as strong in an, another type of established microbiome, for instance. No, because I, I think, to be honest, I think it's kind of astonishing here what they show with the channel diversity, that if you celebrate with the in-laws, you have significantly higher diversity after Christmas, while if you family celebrate with your family, it's slightly lower, and that those group groups are actually different from each other. Uh, and of course, this might just be a noise effect from that they don't have a lot of samples, but contemplate for a moment if it's true what that would mean in terms of like dispersal of microbes between people yeah never spend it with your <laughs> with your own family no but i mean it depends on it depends on how you look at it what another thing that relates to that is like they say that they have these um what did they did they call them a microbial signature that could uh that could distinguish whether you uh, celebrate with your uh, in-laws or with your family over Christmas. I mean, this year when there's like travel restrictions and you're not supposed to be celebrating with your <laughs> extended family, would these signatures be strong enough to actually discriminate between people who <laughs> sort of did not <laughs> confirm to the recommendations? Uh, I think that might be extrapolating a bit too far. <laughs> it would probably not hold in court. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine they had a lot of fun doing this study. Yeah, though it's a fun study. It is really quirky in the fun way. Mm -hmm. It's not just. I mean, the big drawback of it is really that it's so undersampled. So it's hard to say whether these significances pop up because they are truly there, or if it's something that is basically just random noise, and that with a large, larger cohort it would disappear. I think we had the same. We had one like vegetarian meat and the last podcast or the one before and it's the same if you have such a small sample it's very hard to <laughs> take in the results i guess and also they have like 16 did it, did it i think they had 16 family in eight in law yeah but in in laws 16 in yeah so it's, it's a bit uh, maybe it's a bit skewed and such small no it's it's not yeah. equal as for you and also, there's a lot of factors that <laughs> is missed, I guess, uh, with uh, the participants. I mean, there could be a, a large difference between someone that's 20 and 40, and even if they have the same diet. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, they have been excluding really, really old people. So, I mean, there's at least some mitigation of, of the age effect on the microbiome. Experimentally, there might not be proof, but if you ask random people, this is what they would say, what the paper states. Like, they would experience more stress when they visit their in-laws. So, uh, the, best, the best part of this paper must probably be the two participants did not provide fecal samples on the second time point due to the yuck factor. Yuck factor. <laughs> and they cite a paper, and this, this is what I really like, they cite a paper which is literally titled the junk factor 
with disgust meets discovery. <laughs> so uh, this is apparently part of the uh, scientific uh, canon that you can you can use the word Jack factor. But also this paper was very interesting in terms of, uh, I think if you skim through most of the papers, the introduction is quite a cliche, but here it was so, uh, like in terms of academic writing, it was very interesting, uh, a whole, yeah. I don't know what it's called, linguistic retrospective <laughs> intro. <laughs> <laughs> it felt a bit out of uh, place almost though. It's a yeah, bit like unserious and they talk about stuff that isn't like, like in the paper. But I mean, it, it, yeah. I guess it catches people if you have that intro. I think the first thought while reading this uh, was that this must be like a themed Christmas issue or something because they also have this figure one, which is a, uh, I don't know, it looks a little bit like a small Santa that is taking a, taking a shit. <laughs> Um, I, I recommend everyone who wants to see that figure to actually visit the, visit the website and look at the figure. Uh, then, then if you look at the date it's published, it's actually in July. So I have a hard time feeling that this is a themed Christmas issue. In the discussions, they state this term pan microbiota. What does the term usually mean? Well, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I think when people live in the same place, for instance, they're going to share a majority of microbes just because they use the same things, for instance. So I guess it's a term that is like an umbrella term for the whole microbiome, shared microbiome. That's why it's called PAN. The term that is used more often is the PAN genome, right? So that's if you think about um, a single organism, there's a number of different strains of that organism. And uh, if you take all the genes that these different strains carry, that would be the pan genome. So not all of the, all of the strains can carry the same genes, but together they have this capacity as a species. That's sort of the idea behind the pan genome. And E. coli, for example, has an incredibly large pan genome because the core genome is really small, the genome that all E. coli carry, but they are very plastic in the sense that they can have a lot of more genes in their genome. I guess this is an extension of that. So like the pan microbiome, would that be sort of perhaps the collective microbiome of all humans or something like that? <laughs> that that's the microbes we all share. And then you have a sub portion of that. Could that be how they mean? My understanding is that it's the G like the microbiome of all of your different microbiomes. So the skin, the guts, the lungs, the mucous membranes, and so forth. That's my understanding, but maybe that's uh, not entirely correct. That's another very interesting interpretation. And I think that it would be valid to call that a pan microbiome as well. So maybe we should not use this term because it's really ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least in relation to humans. I think that makes sense. Maybe you could make an argument that there's like a different pan microbiome depending on like uh, environmental the samples that are like common, like maybe two different sections of a coast or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, but again, then since it is ambiguous, mm. maybe we yeah. shouldn't use yeah. that term. Maybe one should say what they mean instead.
is Christmas time, so many people expect to find gifts under their Christmas tree. However, there are also other things under the Christmas tree while it's still growing. Bacteria. These bacteria were studied in a paper published in March in Frontiers in Microbiology. And Mabuba, what impact, if any, do these bacteria have on Christmas? Well, bacteria is really important for Christmas. You might be suspicious just thinking how bacteria can be related with Christmas. But believe me, they are related, and I will tell you today how they are related. I think Christmas is incomplete without an, a nice green Christmas tree. Bacteria residing under the Christmas tree is highly significant for healthy growth of Abyss Nordmaniana, or in general known as Christmas tree. And this is the implication of how bacteria is related with Christmas. Well, the title of the paper that I'm going to discuss today is uh, Under the Christmas Tree, Below Ground Bacterial Association with Abyss Nordmaniana Across Production System and Plant Development. This study was conducted by Gracia Lemus and colleagues and was published in Frontiers in Microbiology in March this year. Abyss Nordmaniana is not only a must thing in Christmas season, but also it has a huge economical values. Every year, more than 30 million trees are grown in Europe alone for commercial purposes. This plant is reared in nursery for two to three years, and then they are transplanted to forest or plantation. But sometimes the growth of the plant is retarded after transplantation, and it makes a huge economical loss. So here, the authors wanted to know more about the microbial communities under the Christmas tree because the knowledge gathered from this study might be beneficial for preventing the growth retardation of this plant. Here, in this study, the authors tried to investigate the effect of three different factors that might be involved in maintaining root-associated microbial communities in soil. And these three factors are plant age, types of nursery management system, and transplantation event. For this study, they considered two different nurseries, a field nursery and a greenhouse nursery. And, and, and they collected this plant from all these two nurseries and from different age groups. They also collected the surrounding soil samples from there. And for the transplantation experiment, they collected plant samples in four different time points. First one was collected from greenhouse nursery just before transplantation. And other three samples were collected three, six, and nine months after transplantation. Then they did the gene extraction and amplicon sequencing of the sample. First, they wanted to know the soil characteristics of these two nurseries. And there was no significant difference in the amount of organic content and pH level among the soil collected from different age groups from field nursery. Only some inorganic content, for example, phosphorus, iron, and manganese was higher in three-year-old plant, comparing to one and two-year-old plant. However, the soil sample collected from greenhouse nursery, this was not actually soil, this was peat moss, and it contained a higher amount of organic materials. This peat moss growth medium was slightly acidic, comparing to the soil sample collected from field nursery. Then they also observed the phylog phylogenetic diversity in microbial communities in field nursery and greenhouse nursery. There was a higher phylogenetic diversity in bulk soil sample comparing to the Rajasphere sample from field nursery. 
And they also observed that age of plants played a significant role in maintaining phylogenetic diversity. Three years old plants showed more phylogenetic diversity than the one and two year old plants in the Rajasphere from field nursery. However, in greenhouse nursery, there was no significant difference in the phylogenetic diversity in Rajasphere according to the age of plants. And when they looked into deep about the composition of bacterial communities, they found that proteobacteria is the tough phyla found in high abundance in both field nursery and in greenhouse nursery. But there was a clear difference in abundance of different taxa in field nursery and greenhouse nursery. For example, bacteroiditis was more abundant in peat moss growth medium comparing to bulk soil in field nursery. And the reason is, Bacteroiditis is a copiotrophic phylum, that means it can grow in high carbon and nutrient-rich medium. As peat moss growth medium is highly enriched with organic material, it grows highly in, in greenhouse nursery. The most significant feature they observed from this study is that Abyssinodmeriana maintains a radiosphere poor microbiome across the plant age and different production system. This microbiome consisted about 20% of the total identified taxa at the genus level across the plant age. And the relative abundance of different taxa in this core microbiome was higher in three-year-old plant comparing to one or two-year plants. Later, they wanted to know the nitrogen cycling genes in the soil sample. They observed that nitrogen cycling genes in both nursery conditions were were found in higher abundance and, and the relative abundance of nitrogen cycling genes increased with age. So it is clear from this study that the abundance of core microbiome taxa and the nitrogen cycling genes both are positively related with the age of plant. And in the transplantation experiment, uh, they found higher phylogenetic diversity in radiosphere of plants before transplantation, comparing to the transplanted plants in the radiosphere. But with the passage of time, the transplanted plants showed more similar radiosphere bacterial communities from a two-year-old plant's growth in the field. Uh, overall, from this study, it can be concluded that the relative abundance of bacterial taxa and nitrogen cycling potentials of radiosphere communities highly dynamics across the plant age. And these communities is affected by the production system. However, Abyssinodmeniana plant maintains a radiosphere core microbiome across the plant age and production system. These core microbiomes are involved in nitrogen cycling and they also provide essential nutrients to plants. Even these core microbiomes also maintained when they are transplanted to fill from a greenhouse nursery. Uh, so there's one thing I would just like to add uh, to your nice summary of this entire paper. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, that during their analysis, they specifically wanted to check out the nitrogen recycling uh, genes of this particular uh, rhizosphere. Why in particular just the nitrogen genes? I don't think you highlighted that in particular. Yeah, actually, I didn't discuss everything from the paper. But the reason is uh, Abyss Nordmariana, this plant is a coconifer, and they mainly grow in an area where in the soil there is a lower amount of nitrogen. So, exactly. Yeah. So they're thinking maybe due to the deficiency of nitrogen, they are not growing perfectly. So yeah. they wanted to know if, if in a plant, what is the abundance of nitrogen cycling genes? Yeah. 
And uh, I think that this is a really cool idea because at least when I was studying, you know, plant biology, as I'm guessing most of you here, uh, you got to figure out that the idea that the main reason that uh, microbiomes exist with plants is to absorb nitrogen. Uh, and I think it is really cool that the authors in this paper, uh, in this paper, that they can they propose the idea that you can differentiate uh, perennial and annual plants based on the time frame that the microbiome of those two different plants can uh, uh, be analyzed. So you can identify what plants uh, are associated with that soil based on the microbiome. Just based, So you can just take an earth sample and just look at, okay, yeah, hmm, here's the microbiome and you can uh, determine if it's a perennial or if it's an annual plant. And that was really freaking cool if you ask me. Christmas trees, uh, they, sort of, they grow where it is quite cold. Uh, so I, I guess it, it sounded, based on what you said in the introduction, that they want to look at is is greenhouse better or is sort of with wildly wildly better for bringing these trees up. So why would you bring them up in a greenhouse? Is there any other benefit? Do they grow quicker, or why? Okay, so the main idea is that because this uh, this species of conifer is grown in greenhouses in greenhouses in general when we for like a consumer purpose, uh, so they wanted to see if that particular growth method in of itself could disrupt compared to when you grow them outside. Okay, so they're not sort of they don't usually start growing outdoors. And there's a difference, you know, when they are grown in in the greenhouse. So there is a lower amount of phylogenetic diversity comparing to when they're growing in the field. So, I guess, but, I guess, but I guess this is just this is basically just a production purpose, right? I mean, you want them to raise them as quick as possible to be able to sell them to consumers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and minimize loss uh, due to yeah growth retardation. But did they discuss that? Because uh, you know, if changing the way they uh, sort of they start their life, if that could, what sort of the end cost would be? So they they speculated a little bit, but they also stated that they 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 couldn't exactly state that just based on the data they generated in this paper that they could extrapolate it onto this uh, retardation problem. Uh, so they was they said that there was an, a gap of knowledge in that particular area that they need to analyze further. They could just state that based on this uh, analysis that they did, where they compared both the time points. Uh, of the different, you know, uh, what do you say, planting time. So when you planted that first, or if you waited three years, uh, there was a significant change in microbiome, but they couldn't say that uh, if the change in microbiome, you got a, retard a, retarded, uh, a retarded growth tree. Because I'm, I'm thinking a bit, <laughs> perhaps this is a dumb thing to say, but when we're just talking about the in-laws and just interacting with your in-laws or your family might change your microbiome unless, you know, so you just, you just just spray some microbiome on the trees in the greenhouse, if that could, <laughs> if you could introduce. I think it, uh, I mean, they did actually speculate a little bit about like how they can recruit the correct microbiome. And they talked that like root exudates is super important to, uh, like recruit the correct beneficial microbes to the near site of the roots itself. And if you don't have a, the tree for whatever purpose or the perennial or whatever is uh, not able to produce the root exudates, then they can't theoretically 
uh, recruit that microbiome. So I don't think it is it is enough to just spritz with a solution of uh, of um, yeah whatever microbiome that you need. Yeah, you need to actively you know recruit it and colonize the root stuff and yeah. Okay. I think. I don't remember exactly what study this is, but it relates a little bit to what Marcus was just saying. Uh, there are studies where they try to apply beneficial microbes to um, to crop fields. And there's an interesting effect there where you add the, um, the beneficial bacterium. Um, and then after, I don't remember exactly the time frame, but I mm. guess it was like six months, the, that bacterium you added is completely gone. You can't detect it anymore. But the beneficial effect on the microbiome remains. So it's like you introduce something that shakes around the soil or rhizosphere microbiome, and then when you look at it again six months later, you have a more beneficial composition, although the actual microbe you added is not there anymore. Um, <laughs> and I, I would need to dig this paper up because I'm just freestyling this from the top of my head. But I, I, I remember that I thought this was pretty cool that you could have this kind of influx of a single microbe that is supposed to be beneficial and then that microbe actually disappears because it's it's not competitive in the in, in the envi- in that environment but it can still shake around things so much that what you get in the end is more productive in terms of uh, plant productivity yeah. and i guess that sort of relates to what you were saying marcus that you could sort of transplant or spray a microbe i actually don't know exactly how you apply beneficial microbes if you spray them or if there's something else you have to do my idea would that you would like grow them in some sort of soil in the lab and then you would introduce that soil to the near area of uh, of the plant that's how that's, i would do it that just that just sounds very inconvenient from an agriculture point of view <laughs> yeah it might be true Couldn't you have to have a nutrient broth and just pour it on the soil well, I guess you might be able to grow that bacteria in the broth. Yeah, I, I, my, what I imagine is that you have you 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 grow bacteria, the beneficial bacteria, are really dense in some culture, and then you dilute it into fertilizer. If you can grow it, that seems is. like the easy way to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I, yeah, fertilizer not. doesn't kill it. I mean, it's not we're talking about dilute stuff. We're doing fertilizers, right? It's like eighty-seven percent ammonia or stuff like that. Oh yeah, okay. Maybe you don't put it in fertilizer. Maybe maybe you just put it like when you're watering your plants or whatever. I mean, you, you still get the point that, I mean, I think you want something that you can efficiently spray on the field. Yeah. Sounds like probiotics. It's agricultural probiotics. <laughs> yep. And this is this is for real a big field. I mean, w- yeah. we are sometimes we're really like focused on the medical applications just because we're sitting at the hospital. But I mean, there is a big field of sort of agriculture probiotics. They're not called probiotics in that case, but... Uh, I think I think they are referred to as beneficial microbes in that case. I still haven't f- really figured out. I mean, how should you grow your Christmas tree in the best possible way? I think they said something about it's good that you or that you grow your saplings first and then introduce them outside because then you get a a a microbiome that is more actively taking up nitrogen. Uh, but I don't think that is that that they can say that like oh yeah this is of course the best way theoretically of everything, but given this condition that they analyzed, I think that was the best. So I, I mean, what I'm really missing in this paper is really an analysis of how do you produce a tree 
that has like a large area under it so that Santa will be willing to put as many packages as possible there, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the, what the goal is <laughs> yeah. here. Uh, and I, they don't really address that in the paper, which I think is a PMO. Uh, I mean, if, if, if you... If you Name your paper under the Christmas tree. Of course, that should be the main aim of the paper. Otherwise, very nice paper. I, I have a small. Wait, I don't. I don't. I don't think you can answer it. Which is a small thought that soil microbiomes can be quite diverse, depending on pH, on what the soil is. Is it, is it core soil? Is it a lot of sand? What's what's in the soil? So I'm, I'm thinking how big. If the microbiome comes. If the change of microbiome comes from the soil or things around it, the trees around it, or sort of, because I guess if you, if you plant a sapling on place X and then you move 500 kilometers west, you might not have the same microbiome in the soil. So, uh, so first and foremost, I'm not a botanist, so there might be some, uh, some discrepancies here that might not be entirely correct. But from my understanding is that conifers in of themselves uh, produce a low pH soil. Yes. Uh, so therefore, if you already have a uh, a area where you conif- conifers have grown, uh, then that will select for a microbiome that is uh, more tolerant towards uh, a lower pH. So there even so you will have even there you will have somewhat of a selective effect towards these micro uh, microbiomes that are more beneficial. But of course there will be some plasticity in between those microbiomes that can tolerate this pH. But it's not like as diverse if you're taking like sand versus uh, yeah conifers. Because I'm thinking temperature as well. I don't know how big effect temperature has. I mean, let's say if you're growing something in Gällivare or if yeah. you go down in, in Malmö, yeah. uh, that might have some sort of effect as well. I don't know if they grow. So, Marcus, you actually have another problem. You actually have another problem there as well. I don't. It must apply also to the conifers. Um, so, if you compare Gällivare to Malmö, you have a lot more yeah. light in Malmö for... Um, a lot of for a bigger part of the year. Although in the summers you get these very much a strong increase in light in the northern part of Sweden, um, and, and that actually affects affects it quite a lot. So I don't I, I I don't know about what is temperature and what is yeah. light, but light is a factor there as well. And there is actually a very very interesting experiment or whatever you would call it in in Uppsala. Where they along the way to the agriculture universities, university, they have uh, planted birches from different parts of Sweden. So they've taken birches from southern part of Sweden and then moving upwards um, towards Umeå and Luleå. And it's super interesting to go there in the spring because you can see that the ones that were planted from the southern part of Sweden, um, they produce leaves first. And then it takes several weeks for that progression to happen. Uh, to the uh, trees from the northern part of Sweden. So these, it's like, it's in their genetic material. It's, I mean, you can't just change it by moving the tree. Uh, they are adapted to different light and temperature conditions, even though they have been replanted in Uppsala. And I think that's sort of related to this moving a Christmas tree somewhere else as well. Yeah, and I think, of course, that factor can be associated, maybe not directly correlated, but you know, you could imagine that the temporal effect that they are describing perhaps is different depending on if the tree is adapted to a quicker 
what is it, blooming period compared to uh, a more slower blooming period. Uh, maybe mm. not blooming is the correct word when you're talking about conifers, but uh, <laughs> no. But I see, I see what I see what you mean. I, I think, and I, I, I guess now I'm really freestyling this, but I guess that the trees in north, the northern part of Sweden, must be adapted to sort of more efficiently use the light that is there in the summers as well. So it's like they have to be good at transitioning between different modes of growth. But you know, if you're in the southern part of Sweden, that's not as important. But this would have to be. To be we need to bring like a Three, three biologists on here to tell us about this, I guess. Some sort of botanist, at least. So we just discussed one important aspect of Christmas, which is the Christmas tree. But another key component in every um, in every kid's Christmas is the Christmas gift. Uh, and to make sure that the Christmas gifts arrive, we need transportation. And a severely understudied subject is how the microbiome of Santa's main mode of transportation actually looks. And what impact that has on the capacity to move Christmas gifts across the world. And we have not really read a paper on that, but we have read a preprint that starts to sort of disentangle this subject a little bit that was put on the preprint server BioArchive in February this year. Uh, and Marcus, could you update us a little bit on the reindeer microbiome? I can. So as you know, if we, need, if we have a mode of transportation, it needs fuel. Uh, and um, fuel for biological beings is food. And reindeers have something called a rumen and cows has it and deer has it. And it's the first stage uh, of, of the sort of digestive system in these animals. And it contains a lot of, uh, it contains a microbiome. This microbiome starts to ferment and degrade cellulose uh, into uh, short chain volatile fatty acids. And then that sort of goes through the entire system and that helps the animal uh, digest and absorb nutrients. <clears throat> so depending on what type of microbiome these animals have, it's quite um, not too far-fetched to assume that it might affect the digestion because different microbiomes might excrete different enzymes that degrade different types of cellulose or different type of plant material differently. Uh, and if we think about a production perspective, if we think about cows or sheep, if they have different microbiomes that degrade their food differently, that might affect their growth. It might affect their milk and the fat content of that milk. So this is something that is quite it's both interesting to study and it is also important from a production perspective. So what these researchers have done is they have looked at the microbiomes of reindeer, red deer or kronjort in Swedish, uh, cows and sheep. Uh, and they have looked at the microbiome in the rumen of these animals. And the rumen is part of the first stage of the uh, digestive systems of these animals. This paper didn't really have they didn't really test a hypothesis. They didn't really want to say, we want to try, we want to see if this is true or this is false. What it basically is, is it's all about the metagenome. Uh, the goal is in their conclusion, they say, we have a metagenome that we will publish and we can then use this metagenome to look at other things. And some of the things they mention 
in their introduction is that they can find novel enzymes uh, that degrade uh, carbohydrates um, or cellulose, and that can be used for bioproduction, such as uh, processing biofuels, bioremediation, bioremedia processing pulp, paper, textile manufacturing. Uh, and we talked a bit about probiotics before. So they say that if you find these particular very these very good microbiomes with particular processes or particular um, that are particularly good at degrading certain foods, then perhaps you could introduce them in production animals in order to increase the animal's production of meat or milk and things like that. And these sorts of metagenomic studies have been done previously in sheep and cows, which is not very surprising because they are very important for us, but they haven't really been done in uh, red deer or reindeer. There was a 16S study in, done in reindeer, but that only tells us what is in the microbiome, what species are there. It doesn't really tell us what they do. And if you remember, the, the researchers wanted to look at both the taxonomic composition and what they do. Uh, so that is what they wanted to look at uh, what they, why they wanted to use metagenomic sequencing of these animals. Uh, and for this, they had a quite small sample size. They had four cows, they had two sheep, four uh, red deer, and two reindeers. So I think we should go in with this knowing that the sample size was quite small. I, I don't know why, it could be a cost thing. Uh, metagenomic sequencing is quite expensive. So a comment on um, that is that they actually do sequence extremely deep in every single yeah. metagenome. So I think they've done they've gone for a lot of sequencing depth rather than a lot of replicated animals. Then of course that's something that yeah. you could question, but I think that has been the re the reasoning here. Yeah, but I guess the thing is the reason why they wanted to include red deer and reindeer was because there is a bigger potential of finding something new. And that's perhaps a good reason why they chose to go for really deep sequencing, because there might be some quite uncommon species or phyla that they want to find. And if you sequence deeper, then there is a bigger probability that you will find these more rare taxa. So that was a bit about the introduction to the paper. Uh, and I will start by explaining a bit about the taxonomy, what they actually found. So as I said, they didn't really do any hypothesis testing. So this is a bit more descriptive, what is in the data. One thing they did was that they wanted to look at how much of this is bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. So they saw that around 92 to 97% of the breeds were mapped to bacteria for all the four uh, types of animals. And archaea, 62%, so a bit less. And then very few percent for eukaryotes. And then in all ruminants, uh, bacteria data was the most abundant phylum, followed by firmicutes. And then they looked at the difference in abundance of phylum, family, and genus between all the different animals. And they saw uh, that there was a difference in all these taxonomic levels. They also uh, assembled and created, sort of wanted to see, do we have any novel species or phylum uh, in these different samples? So they call it um, rugs or uh, rumen unculturable genomes. 
Uh, so now we're talking about assemblies. So they identified 372 novel strains, and I'm still talking about from all four types of animals. So 372 novel strains and 279 novel species. And this is genomes with eight, over 80% coverage, over or equal to 80% coverage. Then they list in what species they found the most amount of new uh, genomes. And I think this sort of justifies why this paper exists, I think, because they say that they found 111 new genomes in red deer alone that are not shared among the other species. Uh, and then 78 for reindeer and 40 from cow and 31 from sheep. And then they, you can see that um, the red, I'm not going to go into the, to the numbers, but if you look at what are these genetic assemblies are shared between, let's say, red deer and then the more well-studied cow and sheep, there are very few. And the same thing if you compare reindeer to cow and sheep, there are also quite few of these that are shared. So I think this is why they did this study, because they wanted to find uh, rumen unculturable genomes that they hadn't found before. And they saw that these microbes were taxonomically diverse. So they found 15 different phyla. And then they say that 136 of these novel genomes were bacteria data uh, and 121 were from Firmicutus A. So quite a lot of them were from these, uh, these phyla. Yeah, so they, I mean, they, they only didn't only look at the taxonomy. And I think what's interesting, if you summarize the taxonomy, is that they find a bunch of different new genomes, and they also find that the different species seem to, seem to be carrying different microbiotas. So there's a lot of species-specific bacteria in here. There's a caveat, of course, with this, since they only sample two individuals for uh, the, the two deer species here. So... In in a sense, it might just be that they have not sampled enough individuals to see whether this is actually a if these new genomes are actually species specific or host specific or not, uh, and they acknowledge that very well in the discussion. So I don't, I mean, I don't think that's a con controversial issue at all. But to some extent, it's not really known how species specific or I should say host specific these new genomes actually are. Uh, anyway, what they do see is that you have this pretty big diversity between the species of which microbes they carry. So those seem to be pretty species-specific. Uh, and then what they wanted to look at next, if if the functional potential of these species are, um, is, if that potential is also uh, species-specific. And the bottom line finding is that it's not. Uh, they basically carry the same groups of uh, genes for carrying out um, carbo carbohydrate uh, degradation, for example. So they look at a number of different gene families in the CaseHimes database and in the KEG database. And they basically find that while there are differences um, between the different host species, they do carry the same arsenal of uh, carbohydrate breakdown enzymes within their microbiota. It's just the proportions that differ. And I guess that was not entirely surprising, but a little bit surprising since uh, at least the reindeer and the red deer 
are supposedly are supposedly having a pretty different um, lifestyle and different diet uh, since they are wild animals. But I think that's the big take-home message from the very short functional assignment that they do. Um, one thing that I think is worth noting here, though, uh, since, I mean, I only came into this paper for the reindeers, uh, so uh, I noted some interesting reindeer statistics from the, um, uh, from the taxonomic analysis, and I think it's actually pretty interesting that if you look at these four different ruminants, um, most reeds map to bacteria, but the proportion is actually much lower for the reindeer. So bacteria in sheep, 97%, in cow, 97%, red deer, 98%, reindeer, 92%. So what is the rest? Well, it turns out that a lot of that is actually archaea, which I think is pretty fascinating. Reindeer has 6.3% archaeal reeds compared to around 2% for the other ones. So maybe there is, I mean, the reindeer rumen is maybe a little bit more of an extreme environment since the archaea has been typically associated to extreme environments. And that would be a pretty cool finding, I guess. Uh, maybe that's what's providing the boost for Santa's sleigh, actually. Uh, I guess further research is needed into that area. Um, they also have more eukaryote uh, DNA in their microbiome. So the difference is not that pronounced there, perhaps, but the reindeer uh, comes in at 1.8% compared to sheep 0.2 and reindeer 0.5. Cows are in the middle with 1.3 there. So maybe there's could be, there could also be some eukaryota providing some extra fuel for, uh, for Santa. So I think there's, there's a few interesting differences in here. Um, although I guess the big take-home message here is really that this is not so much a research paper as a data generation paper. I mean, they they show off that they have these really cool deep assemblies of these genomes. And as you said earlier, I think one of the big take-home messages here really is that it's worth looking into these other ruminants because there you really can find a large number of new genomes. I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was in the order of 100 new genomes in the red deer, and then maybe 78, 80, somewhere there for the reindeer, and then a lot, a lot fewer for cow and sheep. Um, so I think that's also an interesting point, uh, point to make there. I also think it was interesting to look at how these different animals compare to each other in for terms of their functional capacity because it's it's really clear that the reindeer stands out of it exactly why it stands out is not super obvious but i mean the other groups sort of cluster together in their multivariate plots i guess it its lifestyle compared to the other ones are extremely different could be yeah i guess i mean if you if you look at red deer and cow not really similar lifestyle but i mean <laughs> But I would I, I think that the difference between the reindeer walking around on the mountain eating lichens, <laughs> which is from my understanding what reindeers do, uh, that is extremely different. Uh, I mean that must be very extreme and extremely difficult to to digest all these lichens and then it's cold and it's very different from from reindeers which might live more in a forest environment where there might be different foods. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that there's a difference between those really either, but just a final note on the experimental design here. I mean, I came, as I said, I came into this paper 
to learn more about Santa's reindeer, only to uh, discover in the experimental design that they actually shot Santa's reindeer. So it says that <laughs> reindeer were shot in the wild. It's like, ah, oh, so that doesn't really bite well for Christmas, I guess. From my point of view, what I really like here is that they sequence these genomes so extremely deeply. I think they're they're close to a billion reads per sample, if I remember the numbers correctly. Which, I mean, that's that's a lot of data. So I can understand that they didn't replicate that so much and focused on getting out the new genomes. Uh, and I think that's an interesting approach to the specific thing they want to discover here, which is new species. I mean, sequencing depth is probably much more important than covering a lot of animals in that sense. But then, of course, you would need to have sort of like longitudinal studies to actually characterize whether these bacteria are common or not across many individuals. And I guess for that purpose, you might not have to, you might not have to shoot the reindeer. Maybe you can just look at the feces and see if you can detect the species in there now when you have the genomes. But one thing that I'm thinking about, because they, they say that the, the main purpose of this is to find novel things, novel enzymes, novel species, novel phylum. But if that is the goal, why do they also sequence the cow and the sheep? Because they say that that has already been done. So if they want to know, find more rare things, why just not perhaps skip the cows, skip the sheep, sequence more reindeers? And, and red deer since then. They don't really say, which is a problem, but I, I can imagine one reason. Um, and that is that maybe the previous studies on sheep and cow hasn't been sequencing this deeply. So they also want to just sort of benchmark that it's not just a, me- just mo- not a methodological thing. That, I mean, to some extent, it would allow you to look at whether a large cohort of shallowly sequenced cow would provide the same information as a small cohort cohort (laughs) of uh, really deeply sequenced cows. Uh, I guess that could be a a potential reason for including them in this study as well. And maybe also just to have consistent data. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Do they do any analysis of this uh, eukaryotic abundance? Uh, further, because I mean, I think it would be kind of interesting to see if these are uh, fungi or if there are protists or even uh, maybe some nematodes. No, I didn't see anything from that. I mean, they they essentially quantify the really big taxonomic groups here, and then they don't really dwell into the the other findings they they get. Uh, and I mean. From what I understand, they don't assemble anything else than bacteria into their uh, rugs. Okay, okay. Um, but they then detect these eukaryos and the archaea through a larger database that they sort of concatenate together with their genomes. Or Marcus, uh, do you remember any more in-depth analysis of the eukaryos? No. No, I don't think. I don't think they did any. No anything like that. I mean, they didn't do go into depth in many things. They were mostly multivariate analysis, heat map, mostly sort of just big picture stuff to get a, a good overview. They did go into it perhaps a bit more when they looked at enzymes, that, um, but I wouldn't say it wasn't really necessary for what they wanted to do, this paper, I think, to go into more depth. 
would be interesting though because i agree with you yeah and i mean i'm really anxious to know what what's making santa's reindeer so special so i would have liked to see a deep dive into the reindeer archaeal microbiome yeah that's your yeah. new master's project <laughs> Someone who wants to change prog- project like halfway. Don't even get started, dude. <laughs> yeah. We have so much yeah, to do. PhD. <laughs> One really important thing to remember uh, in this paper is that it's not really a research paper. It's a data descriptor, essentially. Uh, and they do some very basal analysis on that data descriptor, but they don't go into detail basically anywhere. Um, and it's... It's telling, I think, that in the last paragraph, they say, in conclusion, metagenomic binning is a highly powerful technique. Yeah, yeah that's not a very strong conclusion, right? Uh, it's a very methodological conclusion, but it, I think that's in, that sort of encapsulates what this paper was about. It was about showing that this method works and it generates a lot of, a lot of new interesting genomes. And then a follow-up question for maybe the more uh, wet lab-oriented people in the lab. I mean, one thing that they are saying here is that it would be important to, in the future, culture, do culture-based studies uh, to sort of determine the functional potential of, of this microbiota. How important would you, would you say that that is in comparison to having the genomes now, given that it's also kind of complicated to grow these bacteria? I mean, the golden standard, of course, is always to, you know, have a culture-based confirmed assay of whatever it is that you want to analyze. But I mean, of course, there's going to be a problem with culturing unculturables, right? So you need to first, you know, establish that this bacteria, like, can be analyzed in the first place. So like, you can't just, I mean, of course, it would be very nice, but I mean, it would also be nice to see if we could find microbes on meteorites, right? I mean, it's the same idea. Yeah, so what are your plans for the, the meteorite? <laughs> no, a really long stick. <laughs> so thanks everyone for a great discussion. Uh, it's time to wrap up this Christmas-themed pod. Uh, a particular thanks to Havila, who is um, who is leaving the lab very soon. Um, also, thanks Sebastian, thanks Anna, thanks Mabuba, thanks Emil, and thanks Marcus. In addition to this, we of course want to wish all of our listeners a Merry Christmas, or I mean, at least as merry as possible under these kind of unusual circumstances, and a Happy New Year. And I hope that the coming year will be more about hope and about a quick recovery from this disaster that has been 2020. Uh, So to all of you in the lab, Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and I look forward to work with you again in the coming year. And let's hope that we can get together physically more often than has been the case in 2020. And as usual, take care and stay healthy. This pod is hosted by the Bengtsson Palmer Lab at the University of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comment about the content of the pod, please send us a message on Twitter at Bengtsson Palmer as one single word, or send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. 
If you like what you're hearing, please give us five-star reviews uh, in, for example, the Apple Podcast Store. That would be an excellent Christmas gift for the crew. Thank you for listening. 